Wistful Thinking is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies and nostalgia, visit cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome to Wistful Thinking, where this month we are talking about the work of Jim Carrey. I'm Kara Gale-Regan. With me is my co-host, Jordan Poland-Clark. Hi. And, oh wow, we got a lot of, uh, we got a lot of, we have a lot of ground to cover today. This, this escalated so quickly. <laughs> like, like, it went from me being, like, like, pulling your teeth out to make you watch a Jim Carrey movie. Mm. Tell us how many you watched since we last recorded. Um, nine, I think. And one of those things was I watched twice, and then one of those things was an entire TV show. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I've been on a journey with Jim Carrey. I've really come around on him. Um, I watched that documentary on Netflix. Did you wind up watching that? No. Okay. Well, it was like, it was like finding a Rosetta Stone to understanding Jim Carrey, and uh, I found it really interesting. And um, now I kind of like him? Question mark. I I I thought that. Like my comedic sensibility was like the polar opposite of his. And mm-hmm. what I've realized is that it's not all that different. They just manifest in very different ways. <laughs> like I he like is like really a, an absurdist yeah. to a certain extent. And also I started thinking, wait a minute, are all Jim Carrey movies horror movies? Because that Ooh. certainly casts things in a different light. And I think the answer to that question is actually kind of yeah. I like that. Yeah. I've I've watched less than you have. And maybe this is just because of like my line of work. But I've come to think of him as a clown. Like mm-hmm. a very, very good clown. Because yeah. the, best, the best clowns will make you feel every single emotion. And they'll also kind of like reflect society back at you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in in different ways. You know, they all have kind of their own style and their own, you know, th- things that they make you feel. Um, but I think he is has made choices that are that do that really well. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I was like kind of all over the place as far as like what I was choosing to watch I didn't like watch everything that he's done because he's done quite a lot but um kind of all over the place in theme and tone and uh different points in his career and actually the very last thing that I watched last night was a movie from 1985 called Once Bitten did you know that Jim Carrey was in a vampire movie because I did not I didn't either what how big was his part in it uh, he's like the male lead, so he's wow. the star of the movie. Yeah, um, I kind of really liked it actually. I mean, it certainly like has its problems, and there's like a lot of homophobia in the movie, which is not great. Mm-hmm. Um, but he plays this. It's kind of like um, I like. I got a real kind of cross between Fast Times at Ridgemont High and uh, Amy Heckerling's last movie, Vamps, um, mm-hmm. which you still really need to see. Uh, it's so good. Um, but it was like those two movies kind of mixed up and combined, like not quite as good as an Amy Heckerling movie, but they were interesting and had great production design and, um, kind of like a fun 
campy vampire movie where he plays this high schooler who he's a virgin and uh, he's like trying to get his girlfriend to have sex with him, you know, classic 1980s movie. Um, But he and his friends like go to a bar in Hollywood for an evening and there's this woman there who's a vampire and she needs to recruit some virgins to eat. Uh, so that she can like stay young. I that part of it was a little cloudy, um, you know. And then hilarity ensues. And the the vampire is played by Lauren Hutton, who I love, and she's so beautiful. Um, and like, it just gets really weird. And they wind up having a threesome. And then like the next scene, like it, like a dreamscape threesome. And then like the next scene, they're having an actual dance off. Which was amazing, and I think (laughs) is worth watching the whole movie just for that that one dance scene, because there's so many legs, and they're all good legs, and it's just, (laughs) you know, and Jim Carrey is, like, really, like, moving his body all crazy. It was great. Um, But the thing that was really interesting about it was that it's, like, so early in his career, like, you can tell that he's not, like, a fully, he doesn't have a sense of his, like, fully developed persona yet Mm -hmm. um so it was just like seeing like a tall like it could have been a tall tom cruise or michael j fox you know (laughs) but like with these like weird moments of absurd like elasticity that were really fun uh so i uh, recommend that one that was great um yeah and then we both watched the cable guy which was yeah well was there anything chronologically in between Oh, yeah, he did some other things. He did some other things, and then he was on um, In Living Color, and then he made the three movies that came out in 1994, and then The Cable Guy was 96. Yeah. Yeah. But you didn't watch anything else in between? No. Okay. Okay. So then I guess we get to talk about The Cable Guy. Mm Mm-hmm. Which... Which, when I was watching it, this was what, like, put me... On the are all Jim Carrey mover, movies horror movies. Well, this track. is definitely a horror movie for sure. I was like, wait, is this a horror movie about cable television? And the answer is yes. Right. So if you haven't seen the Cable Guy, it stars Jim Carrey and Matthew Broderick. Um, Matthew Broderick plays kind of a sad guy mm-hmm. who has just broken up with his girlfriend and moved into his own apartment and. Um, Jim Carrey comes to install his cable and then basically becomes a stalker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie was originally meant to be kind of like just an annoying like friend comedy. But Jim Carrey and Judd Apatow basically took it and like blew it up and mm. made it much, much darker than it was initially supposed to be. Um, and Ben Stiller too, because Ben Stiller directed it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, the three of them just kind of blew it up on purpose. Um, it was originally supposed to star Chris Farley, who had to turn it down because of scheduling things. And you can really see like what, if you think of Chris Farley in the role, you can see what the movie was supposed to be. Um, and like audiences didn't like it because it was so dark Mm. um but i 
well, one, it would just have been like a dumb, stupid movie that we wouldn't have even enjoyed watching now if that's what it was. But I really like it as an example of like basically the first time Jim Carrey on purpose made a choice that kind of blew up his own image. Mm-hmm. And which is like a fun thing that purpose. he does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he definitely did it on purpose. Interesting. I wrote. Is this Scream, but TV, several question marks, both came out the same year. So, because, like, in the movie, um, there's this kind of, like, he keeps, like, he's constantly, like, quoting movies and referencing TV shows and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And it's like, his brain has been so rotted by television Mm -hmm. that um, he's, like, so obsessed with it that it, like, drives him to, like, attempted homicide basically um, when he also like just has no concept of of reality of like reality or how to react in normal human relationships because everything he's doing is like basically based on television and also he's like a crazy criminal also that um this is i want to read a quote that i copied and honestly i can't remember where it's from anymore it's probably from the av club because that's where i usually go when i'm like "Ooh, how did how was this received Um, it says, um, of course, it's that very shattering of expectations, the abuse of them, even that makes the cable guy so much more fascinating, so much better than its detractors have always insisted at the height of his popularity. Carrie took a risk on a dark, alienating stalker comedy. And according to Apatow, the comedian played a very active role in the subversion of his own star power, the pushing of his character in increasingly unsympathetic directions, a cruelly hilarious experiment in audience agitation. The cable guy was was also the first sign that there was more to its in-demand leading man than rubbery features and a brave, almost pathological willingness to look foolish. Mm-hmm. And I find that all to be very true. Yeah. I'm just reading some of the uh, things that I copied from one of the profiles that I had read of him. Um, he said, quote, my plan was not to join Hollywood. It was to destroy it. Like, take a giant sledgehammer to the leading man and to all the seriousness. Which really, you can see it in, like, every single movie he's made. Maybe, like, except for those really early ones from the 80s, where he hadn't quite figured that out Mm -hmm. yet. You can really see, and I feel like we, this is easier to talk about when talking about The Truman Show, which is, I think, Mm -hmm. the next movie that we watched right because the only one in between those two is liar liar and you didn't watch that did you no no thank you so you can really see it in the truman show and then also again in eternal sunshine like he's he's really good at being like a very regular guy Mm -hmm. with like a lot of both like sadness and also, like, determination. Mm-hmm. Like, he's able to, like, seem very, very regular and look very, very regular. And, and then still... do these, like, extraordinarily wild things with his, yeah. with, like, with his career, with his face, with his body, like, in so many different ways. But he also is able to be really subtle. Mm -hmm. Like, he can go both ways, depending on, like, the 
feel like what whatever he thinks the part calls for. Yeah. Um because in the Truman show he's plays a guy who's like a little bit silly. Mm-hmm. But is also just like very, very, very regular. Yeah. <laughs> very normal guy. Um like and he was doing that like at the height of his fame too, mm-hmm. which is so interesting. Like that's a not just well, I guess maybe not the height of his fame. That was probably in like ninety four, ninety five. But like he had been super, super famous for long enough that like you would think that he would have no concept of how to do that anymore. Well, yeah, it's just not what made him famous. Like, yeah, like I feel like I mean, even I remember being aware of this. In so the Truman Show was ninety eight, so I was twelve, and I saw it when it came out. And even I remember being like, oh, he's doing a serious thing now. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this is different. Um, but even when I was 12, I really liked the movie. Yeah. And I, it really blew my mind watching yeah. it this time around. It was, there were, okay, so wait, before we get into it, The Truman Show is, again, from 1998, stars Jim Carrey as a guy who, from the moment he was born, um, was the star of a TV show, and he's the only one who doesn't know it. Like, they basically created an entire world just for him. Uh, Everyone is an actor, except for him. Yeah. Um, And I had, like, like, extremely intense emotional reaction (laughs) when I was watching it. Um... Because, like, not only is he, like, is everyone, you know, so aware of the fact that, like, this is a, this is, he's not just a TV show, like, he is a TV show that's watched by everyone all of the time, it seems. Like, even, like, the Kardashian level of fame is not to the level I feel like that this No, because it's so different than that. Like it's a twenty four hour Yeah T V network, basically. Yeah. And like the Kardashians like are very mainstream, but like not everyone watches their show or whatever. Like people know who they are but don't necessarily watch the show. Like in this movie it seems like everyone is watching this kind of like all of the time, glued to their T V sets. And I was and everyone's been watching it, you know, for, for his literally his entire life. Yeah. yeah, and I was so anxious the whole time I was watching it, just like thinking about how like mortifying and invasive and traumatizing it would be to find out that your entire life was a TV show produced without your consent, and like the whole world watch is watching it for entertainment, and you're the only one who didn't know. And then like also. Literally every person you know and love has been aggressively gaslighting you about, mm-hmm. like, the fundamental truth of your existence. <laughs> like, yeah. that w- really, like, set me off, like, to an extent that I was, like, cr- crying through most of the movie and it, like, really fucked up my day. Uh, but I f- it was fascinating. Like, it was an inc- incredibly well-made movie and, like, you know, for, like, to have... To be able to, like, evoke such strong emotion, I think, is, like, really incredible. The, yeah, the, the, this is when I'm going to cry for the first time. I told Aww. Kara that, like, I'm having a really crying day, and, like, these movies 
the next two, well, no, we'll probably talk about some in between. But I watched The Truman Show and Eternal Sunshine, and we're, they're both, like, very emotional movies. Yeah. And so I'm totally going to cry talking about them. <laughs> and this is the first time I'm going to cry because I just thought, like, the thing that I told on, I have to cry first, and then I'll say it. <laughs> The thing that, like, really struck me about the Truman Show as an adult is that, like, the one of the main takeaways that I had this time that I never had before is that you can't, like, they set up this whole world to keep him inside the world, mm. and they couldn't do it, <laughs> you know? Like, like, there's just no, like, when someone is determined to do something, and they decide to do it, you can't, like, you couldn't crush his spirit, you know? You just couldn't yeah. do it. <laughs> and not only that, but, like, the, the people watching it, like, they were rooting for him to escape it. Yeah. <laughs> like, they were on his side. They wanted him to get out. And I feel like, like, that's for, like, that's the turn, kind of, like, like, to me, once you could tell that the people watching it, a lot of them understood mm. that even though he didn't know it, he was trying to escape. Well, because everyone is trying to escape. And, yeah, and it's like, I just love that they were all rooting for him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's still really fucked up because of all the things that you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. But, yeah, I um, I didn't think about that, and you're so right. Um, because, I, like... In addition to like showing his his life, him going about his day, you also see like outside of that world, people watching it on TV. And one of the people actually that's watching it is this guy in a bathtub. And that guy, that guy, that guy is the same actor who plays Napoleon in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. One of my favorite movies and one of my favorite characters in that movie. He's so good. And like he doesn't have to say a word and he's like, you're just... I'm. I just. His name is Terry Campbell. Campbell. Camilleri, uh, and I'm obsessed with him. <laughs> it was like, oh my god, it's Napoleon in a bathtub. <laughs> it was exciting. It's really interesting to me, though, that we could both have such strong emotional reactions to this movie for completely different reasons. No, I mean, I had the same emotional reaction as you for that reason, also. Yeah. But I. But I had always had that reaction to it like yeah. the, the one I talked about was just like I never saw it that way mm. before yeah well there's a moment at the towards the end of the movie where he is escaping um and he's on this boat and he reaches the very outer edge of this world and the boat actually like pierces the um the barrier and he touches the wall and he just makes this face and this goes back to what you were saying before about uh jim carrey's ability to do something very subtle and still full of emotion he touches the wall and he makes this face that's just like i'm not crazy after all and that really like that was the the thing that ruined my day (laughs) i mean like it, it it was uh, reassuring that this character that I was rooting for finds out that he's not crazy after all. But I have been uh, in serious situations where I felt like 
I was crazy and everyone was telling me I was crazy. And then to find out that you're not actually crazy and there is something going on um, is like a really powerful moment. And the fact that he was able to do that just like with a face and all he says is, oh, he doesn't have to say anything else. He just makes a face and says, oh, and I was like sobbing. Do you know, like the thing that really got me about that part and I've been trying to figure out why is like, and I think I just figured part of it out, maybe. But for some reason, like, so after I, I noticed when I, when I was watching that part, he, I really noticed his wardrobe. Like, mm. he's wearing a turtleneck sweater and, like, khaki pants with a belt. And his shirt's tucked in. He, like, it's the most, like, regular, boring outfit. Because that's who Truman is, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And but it but there's something about it that seems that it's like there's still like for some reason so much like dignity in that and like like mm-hmm. he's at his like lowest low, right? Yeah. He he is like you can kill me right now or I'm getting out of here, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's. I don't know there's just something about the way he's put together and like the choice of having that character still wear I don't know there was something I couldn't stop thinking about his turtleneck that's amazing I did not notice his wardrobe (laughs) at all whatsoever and that's usually like I don't know why I don't know why that's what got me but it was yeah and I think I think now thinking about it like that's definitely part of it it's just that like he there is so much dignity in mm-hmm. it, you know yeah uh laura linney plays his wife in in the world um and of course she she's in on the plot but when he starts f- freaking out because he's like figured out that like something is going on um and she's afraid that he is going to hurt her uh they're like in the house and he's kind of like chasing her around and she still has this smile on her face even though she's, <laughs> she's like so Truman creepy. you're scaring me yeah uh she, she's so good well I mean, and she's you can tell great, she but... she just like wants to be professional you know like mm-hmm. you can tell that she yeah and she even yells like seriously. this is an unsafe work <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah like she just thinks she's doing a job yeah which is you know so heartbreaking that like to her this is just a job and like to him. like this is his life that's his wife that's a woman that he loves oh god yeah it also made me want to delete all of my social media accounts and throw my phone into the sea yeah i mean like what a commentary on something that didn't even exist yet yeah i think but it was it did, more you know a commentary on um uh reality tv which yeah, did exist sure. but it has like grown in, in so many ways and like with the addition of social media I think yeah. that this film is like fascinating and so prescient and I think the same actually is true of the cable guy I was like really impressed by its take on media and how it kind of infects our lives yeah. and also like had some interesting thoughts on like the internet of things which definitely didn't exist back then um no but yeah it's like shocking how 
these two movies that are you know 20 years old now over 20 years old still felt like incredibly relevant yeah in their themes um which actually is a good transition to to talking about eternal sunshine of the spotless mind which i watched twice once just regular and then i have like the original dvd um and i watched the director's commentary with uh michel gondry and it also had the writer charlie kaufman is that uh-huh. the guy uh-huh. yeah yep. he didn't say much but uh <laughs> it was actually really funny because michel gondry is like so evocative with his language and like you know really expressive and then he'd be like charlie do you agree and be like sure yeah <laughs> really quite funny um but that was really fascinating because it gives so much um insight into uh how the movie got made just not just from like a conceptual standpoint of like how this idea came to life but also like from a technical standpoint they talked about like a lot of really interesting things and it made me think about um the like the tech in the movie um, because it, the I don't know, you describe the movie and then I'll keep talking. Oh, so Eternal Sunshine is about a world. Well, it's about a couple. It's about, um, Jim Carrey and Kate, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet! Who is my heart. God, I, 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 so I mean, they're both just horrible people in this. Like, I hate yeah. them both. You're supposed to. Well, I think, you know, both of them are dealing with uh, untreated mental illness. Yes, absolutely. And maybe if they, like, got some therapy and, like, got on the right medications, like, they'd be fine. They'd but be both people. of them are in complete denial. People. Yeah. And they're really, it seems as though they're really in a relationship to look to save themselves yeah. from their mental illness rather than doing the work themselves. Yeah. And the movie is also a commentary on that because yeah. that is like not only a thing that people do in real life, but also like a trope that shows up in movies. Yeah. I would say that's more true of Jim Carrey's character in the movie because there's very little of Clementine, Kate Winslet's character. Like there's very little of her in real life and most of it is his recollection of right. her, his idea of her, his imagination of her. Right, because, so, it's this couple, they they break up, and um, Kate Winslet's character, Clementine, um, has go, gets a procedure that erases Jim Carrey's character, Joel, his name is Joel, from her mind. Like, she has zero memory of him. And he comes to find out. And this is a two-year relationship, so right. <laughs> there and he goes comes two years of your life. Find out that she's done this, and decides to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so the movie is basically us going with him on this procedure. It's like us going into his brain <laughs> with him yeah. while he has her erased. Yeah, and um, it's, it's so like. And it also follows the technician. Um doing the erasing played by um ugh, what's his name Kara what's his name I don't know I oh can't I d- on, there's he's very famous he's very famous yeah. <laughs> wait are you talking about the doc you're talking about the technician not the doctor yeah okay. the technician it's one of two guys <laughs> I can oh never tell God. them apart I'm so mad that or I can't remember his name is, is wait. it Mark Ruffalo it's Mark Ruffalo okay yeah. 
Who's like a very guy? slubby Sam Mark Rockwell. Ruffalo. I always get the two of them. Oh, I can see that. But so like I think shape. I often think of um, Mark Ruffalo as like kind of hot. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And Sam Rockwell is not. Oh, I think they're both pretty cute. Um. Anyway. <laughs> but I I like I like Mark Ruffalo in this because he's kind of slubby and like. Yeah. Um. So it follow it also follows him, and. Um, Kirsten Dunst plays like the like receptionist, like administrative assistant at the business, and it follows her, um, and also the doctor who has come up with this procedure. Um, so there's like different worlds that you're in because you're in the real world with these people. You're in Joel's mind, and then you're in. Well, I guess there's two, two worlds, right? So, um, well, but I also think, yes, there are two worlds. There's both like real life and then Joel's mind, but like Joel's mind also has kind of multiple mm-hmm. <laughs> layers also. Right. Cause he is, um, he realizes, uh, after the procedure starts that he actually like, because the, on paper, this sounds like a good idea. But then you're not just erasing the bad memories, you're erasing the good ones too. And so he realizes that he doesn't, he doesn't want this. Mm-hmm. And so he's like trying to hide from the, the procedure, which they have like mapped his brain and mapped his memories and are going through and uh, basically causing brain damage so that they will not be there anymore. Um, and so this, um, the company that, th- that does this is called Lacuna. This movie was made in like 2003. And I think that the technology that they're using, even though it's already like very kind of like low tech and almost like analog in some ways, um, like doesn't look or seem like it's that old. You know what I mean? Like the fact that it, and they talked about this on the commentary, they wanted it to always be like kind of low tech. Um, And then Michel Gondry said something like, it's like going to Kinko's to get your brain fixed Mm -hmm. because not just, not just is this like a medical and neurological procedure, but these are people who are working a customer service job and their Mm -hmm. lives are going on. Um, And like, this is just another day at work to them, which Mm -hmm. I found really interesting. I, I, have you ever seen the science of sleep? Yeah, yeah. Uh, also a Michel Gondry movie. I love his work. I, I really like, like the directors. way he shows dreams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, they're just like, it's like he, def- he has a very specific style. Yeah. And clearly that's a topic that he's interested in. Yeah. Um, just like, I really like the like the weirdness of dreams and like the shameful things that show up in your dreams. And I, I, I like the way that he does that. I don't even like, it's very different. Like I wouldn't even really totally know what to compare him to besides like Mm -hmm. some other surrealist things, but he has such a, such a style that, that I really like the way that matches Charlie Kaufman's style, Mm -hmm. which is like often also very surreal and right. like very very layered like there's always like so i feel like so many things yeah. going on in a Charlie and they Kaufman were talking movie. about how like <laughs> you're not really supposed to get all of this movie on the first watch like this is they made a movie that you can watch over and over again and like see new things which is an interesting way to think about it 
I had forgotten like like you had watched it and I was like all right I'm gonna watch it but I feel worried that it's like gonna be too like manic pixie dream girl like and I'm gonna be annoyed by some of the themes in it and you were like no 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 that's what it's about like don't worry they know (laughs) and it was it was you were right like they're just so spot on about like that that particular trope like Kate Winslet has a line that she says twice because she doesn't know that she said it the first time (laughs) where she's like I'm just a fucked up girl looking for my own peace of mind like I'm not here to save you I'm not gonna save you please don't look at me like I'm going to but I get the I get the impression that like this is a speech that she has to break out every time Mm -hmm. a guy becomes obsessed with her because Mm -hmm. like this happens and they think that she's gonna be the thing that's gonna you know get them out of their funk or save them and like she's right she's just a fucked up girl with her own problems and mm-hmm. like is not a superhero is not a mental health professional and is not here to save you mm-hmm. and... so i said that it like the movie is kind of almost about the idea of the manic pixie dream girl and not mm-hmm. so much just using that tired old trope i also so the movie opens and we don't know this at the time but the opening of the movie is um joel and clementine meeting again after they've had their memories erased because they both just like even though they're erased they both like held on to this idea and this this like distant memory of of where they met which was in montauk um and they, so they know that this place is is important to them but and they special neither, to them, but yeah, they don't know why. Neither one of them knows why. Yeah. And they both go there and meet again, and and you know that and you know like each other and then and then find out you know their history and to me that's also like a really interesting idea of like if even if you start to erase things you erase people you erase memories it's like you still can't change who you fundamentally are in some ways yeah um and and it's like both like reassuring and sad in some ways like yeah because then they're just standing there knowing what their history is knowing the horrible things that they've said about each other after being in a relationship for two years and they still can't help but like be attracted to each other and still the the movie ends you like you don't know what happens when the movie ends you can't tell if they're going to try to have a relationship again or if mm-hmm. they're just going to be like nope this is a bad idea we know how this ends um but yeah i find it like both sad and reassuring like yeah. it's like they did all this work to get rid of each other and they still just so are fundamentally who they are that they're not different yeah well i had read uh something really interesting which is that the original ending to the movie like in the screenplay was that um i i forget exactly how it was supposed to go but at some point you find out that like it, it jumps into the future and you find out that Clementine has actually had this procedure several times over the years. Oh, I believe and, that. Yeah. And I understand why they didn't do that and they left it open to interpretation. And even the last scene of them 
um, like wrestling in the snow on the beach. You don't know if that's an old memory. You don't know if that's a new yeah. thing. So mm-hmm. it just really leaves it open to interpretation. But I um, would love to also see, or maybe actually my dream scenario is that they make a, a sequel to the movie but from Clementine's perspective. Yeah, that'd be interesting. You know, I well, think and it's that also, would be really cool. I also, like, got the feeling that we, like, even though we spend time with these characters, even if most of the time we spend with the Clementine character is not actually her, it's, you know, whoever he thinks she is. Yeah. Um, even after that, I, do, I don't feel as a viewer that I know either character very well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I and, and I think that's on purpose because I sure. don't think either character don't know knows themselves, themselves very absolutely. well. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so that's all. Like whatever. Like that's all we're allowed to have. Also. Yeah. Well, so we also at the end of the movie find out that, um, Mary Kirsten Dunst's character had the procedure done herself, and it's because she fell in love with her boss, and. Instead of quitting her job, um, just had this procedure done so they could just go about their lives like nothing ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see throughout the movie that she like has a little bit of a crush on him and is kind of sweet on him. Um, and so I think, again, like we were talking about with the previous two films, that they were so like prescient about the future of technology and media and stuff in this case like we know so much more about the brain now than we did when this movie was made or when they wrote the screenplay which like the process of developing the film I think took like seven years it took a really long time um but like what we know now about neuroplasticity and about how you know um like pathways in your brain form and then get reinforced over and over again. Uh, I think we have so much more of a sophisticated understanding of how memory works and stuff like that. And this movie still nailed it that like, yeah, you can go in and like create little holes in your brain, but like the connections between things still are there and Mm -hmm. like will still kind of lead you down the same roads without you even really realizing Um, and something uh, Jim Carrey uh, worked with Michelle Gondry again recently on the Showtime show Kidding Mm -hmm. which I watched all Mm -hmm. of which is I mean it's phenomenal it's so good in so many ways and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a little while but um, there's even a scene in that show where uh, one of the characters like oversimplifies the concept of neuroplasticity and was and like makes a joke about it. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting that these two people are working together again, kind of on some of the same themes and ideas. Yeah. I, I also think this was just like another fun way for him to blow up his image. Oh, for sure. Because oh, it's... Oh, what? what? Okay, what? sorry. This was just really exciting, and I forgot about it for a second, and I wanted to tell you immediately when I heard it, and then I was like, no, save it for the podcast. So on the director's commentary, Michel Gondry says that he told Kate Winslet to play Jim Carrey in this movie. And you can't have two Jim Carreys in a movie, so they're <laughs> fli- like their character types are flipped. Which Ooh, I, I love found that. And it, yeah, so and it does feel like an unusual role for her too. Yeah. He he gave her the direction that like she should be inside out and he and told him that he should be outside in. 
and he really like struggled like um when they were like improvising scenes and stuff he would do funny things and say funny things and Michel Gondry would be like stop doing that and he really like struggled <laughs> with that was really annoyed and like why won't you let me be funny uh which I find really interesting hmm. yeah I mean he's just like the most depressing person in this yeah he's a real sad sack um there are some other things from the director's commentary that I did not realize. A woman was the director of photography on this. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. And it's su- such a beautifully shot movie, and I think so much of it is really iconic, like that um, shot of them lying on the ice next to the crack and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, what, back to what you were saying before about Michel Gondry is like the way that he is able to kind of create a, a really real feeling kind of dreamscapes um the way that uh he and the cinematographer kept getting in arguments because she likes to use um a lot of smoke Mm -hmm. in uh shots because it like changes the density of the air and so the light passes through it differently and especially when you're using um, artificial lighting, uh, it can make it look, give it more of like a naturalistic look. And he kept telling her like, stop using so much smoke. And she would like argue with him. And he like watching it back during the director's commentary was like, I have to apologize because like, obviously (laughs) this was like a really good, good use of that. And, uh, we probably should have used it more, which I found really interesting. Um, it was also edited by a woman. And I think so much of this movie is editing like they shot a ton of footage and so it was like a matter of like cutting and recutting over and over again until they got it like just the way they just the way it came out and Michelle Gondry said something interesting that like watching the movie back now or then because they did the commentary like right after it was finished I guess but he said that it was like he had this idea of what the movie was going to be like in his head and then watching it back it's a completely different thing the way that like if you talk to somebody on the phone you have this idea of what they're going to be like and then you you meet them and they're totally different and he said it was like meeting his movie and I found that really interesting um and then they also talked a lot about the score by mm-hmm. John Bryan who is uh a great musician he's uh the preferred um preferred music person for like Paul Thomas Anderson and has worked with a lot of really great people. He did one of my favorite um, movie scores which is I Heart Huckabees. That's one of my favorite movie scores too. (laughs) I wrote a paper on it in art school. It's because it's so good. (laughs) Yeah and I lent my professor my DVD of the movie because he had not seen it and he never gave it back. Oh. Yeah. That's fine. I'm not sure that movie would hold up. I'm not sure either. I think about it a lot. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll rewatch that at some point. Um, I think that's all the all the notes that I took about that one. Uh, except, oh, uh, Kristen Dunst wears a fantastic purple purple velvet blazer that I love a lot. Oh, I didn't notice which part. And the part where like she comes over to Joel's apartment while they're doing mm-hmm. the procedure. Oh, Oh, uh, Kate Winslet's hair color. Do you have anything to say about that? 
her hair? Yeah. Uh, it's pretty good. It is pretty good. Uh, they did it with wigs. I think this Those are good have, wigs. They're great wigs, then. yeah. Uh, but I think this might have been when I started dyeing my hair all sorts of colors. This was like just after I stopped dyeing oh, okay. my hair. All those <laughs> all those colors. Yeah. Um, the reason that I wanted to do this movie when I watched it the first time, I was like, oh my god, I forgot. Like, 2004 was like a very important year for me in my creative development. Um, and this movie was definitely a part of that. I was a junior slash senior in high school. I did like a pre-college art program where I lived in Brooklyn for a month uh, over the summer and was like doing art things. It was like, I think it was the first time that I really like started looking at film as an art form and like starting to understand mm -hmm. that that was a thing. Because at that mm -hmm. program, they like showed us a few movies and I was like, oh, Oh yeah, I guess movies. Which, which are. movies were they? Uh, it was a documentary about naked mole rats. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we watched that. Interesting. <laughs> I should I should hunt that down and watch it again and see if I <laughs> would have a better understanding of it now. Um, that oh, uh, what was that Lars von Trier movie with Bjork? Dancer in the Dark. Yeah. Um, Oh my god, the saddest movie that's ever existed. And then you, like... Ugh. Also, he was, like, terrible to her the whole time, and that's why yeah. she's not in movies anymore. Um, yeah, I have not seen that since. Um, and, oh, another saddest movie ever made, City of God, which is a Brazilian oh, I've movie. I've never seen that one. I have about, heard of it. Yeah, about, like, kids growing up in the favelas. Uh, that was very sad, but also, like, beautiful and brilliant. And there might have been another one, but those are the three that I remember. On, like, Friday nights to keep us from going and doing bad things, they made us, <laughs> like, gather in an auditorium and watch films. So. Oh, and the, the soundtrack to this movie, too. Um, there's a Beck song, which it turns out is a cover. I did not know that. But of of what some obscure move, some obscure song from the eighties that like Michel Gondry would like go around and be like, does anybody remember this song? And he would like sing it to people, <laughs> and they wouldn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> and then he was talking to John Bryan and was like, oh, there's a song and I can't find it. And he sings a little bit of it, and John Bryan was like, oh, hey, wait a minute. And he had like recorded a cover of it earlier that week. Wow. Or the week before, it. yeah. It's that that makes sense because it's a very not Beck. Beck song. Yeah. Well, like, that to whole the point where I was, was like, I think Beck sings this, but I need to Google it because I'm yeah. not sure. That was on his record Sea Change, which was a very not Becky hmm. album, but is very good. And I listened to it a lot in high school. Um, can we do a Kirsten Dunst month next month? Mm. I forgot how cute she is. And then I watched this movie and I was like, well, and we've been meaning to watch cutest. The Virgin Suicides anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she, I mean, talk about somebody who has made a lot of really interesting decisions in the latter mm -hmm. part of their career. Cool. Okay. Yes. But not Kirsten Dunst month yet. Let's keep going. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything else to say about Eternal Sunshine? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Oh, I do want to say that I really like, I think this is just a thing that I like about Michel Gondry is that he 
when he can, I think uses a lot of practical effects rather than Oh, he does. CG. Yeah. Yeah, that was another thing that I did want to talk about. Um, yeah, so many of the effects in this movie are um, either like in camera or practical effect kind of stuff. Like that scene in the kitchen in his like memory as a little boy. Yeah. Where she comes in and says, Mom's friend. That's actually all shot on one set. It's like a forced perspective. So uh, mm-hmm. in the front, the table, like, is smaller and then in the back it's bigger and they yeah very cool i love that it gives his work like such a specific tact like tactile i think is the word that i would use for it yeah yeah that's a good word for it um and then like in the scenes like as his memories are being erased and he's like looking at the doctor and looking at other people and they don't have a face that is the skin of michelle gangery's knee that they just like superimposed over their faces yeah yeah, so there's, like, all these, like, little things in there. Um, but Charlie Kaufman said that he had, like, in the screenplay, there's tons of snow. Like, he had written so much snow into the screenplay, but when you shoot a film, like, you have no idea if it's going to snow or not. So he mm-hmm. had to go through and, like, basically delete it all. <laughs> and then they happened to shoot during this, like, very snowy, cold winter, and that's why there is there wound up being so much snow in the movie, which I think is really cool. Mm. Um, the, the studio had wanted them to shoot in Canada to keep it, keep the cost lower. Mm -hmm. Um, but Michel Gondry, like, which is, this is a very like French filmmaking thing. It like insists on shooting on location for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they wound up not having as much in the budget for special effects. And that's why it is also like, especially kind of low tech, which I think like works perfectly for this film. Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay. So the next thing I watched, and this was something that I watched last night, a movie called I Love You, Philip Morris from 2009. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, that was unexpected. Yeah. Not the movie I thought I was going to be watching. Do you remember it at all? Um, No, not totally. I haven't seen it in probably... Mm, I mean, I saw it when it came out, so I haven't seen it in nine years. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. He plays a, a con man who, uh, he starts the movie married to a woman and then has a near death experience and is like, no, I'm gay and I need to live my truth. So he does that. And then is like being gay is very expensive. So he starts like conning people, um, and winds up in prison and then meets, oh, what's his name? Ewan McGregor. That guy, yeah, meets him, who's also in prison uh, for, like, a petty crime, and they fall in love, and then it becomes this, like, kind of sweet gay (laughs) rom-com, but in prison, and um, then he gets out of prison, and he continues conning people, and then they both wind up back in prison, uh, and then he fakes his own death. It's, like, a whole convoluted thing, and tries to... And, like, escapes from prison, like, 15 different times. But, um, yeah, that was uh, just unexpected. I don't know what I was expecting going into it. And, like, at every turn, I was like, oh, okay. This is not the movie that I expected. Um, I think it's notable because it's... There is tragedy in the movie, but unlike a lot of uh, the body of queer cinema in history, it doesn't have, like, 
an extremely heartbreaking, tragic ending as most gay films mm-hmm. do, which I appreciated. Like the to- like, it is tragic, but the tone of it is very different. Um, but it also felt a little bit like a gay movie made by straight people, mm, which it probably was. Yeah. I couldn't find any information about that, but, uh, yeah, just, uh, unexpected. I also, I don't love it. I, I, it bothers me when people make lighthearted things about prison because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our prison culture is very real and very, a very dire situation and very fucked up. Um, and like, this was my problem with Paddington too, even though it is set in the UK, I was like, I still am uncomfortable with this lighthearted children's movie about prison (laughs) does not feel okay with me i had a similar experience i'm still binge watching brooklyn Mm 99 and there's a story arc where two of the main characters are wrongfully accused of a bank robbery and go to jail and i had similar feelings about that when they were in jail yeah it just uh makes me uncomfortable yeah. Which I think was a, a big criticism of Orange is the New Black in like the first season. And then it got mm-hmm. way darker. And then people were like, oh, it's not as funny anymore. It's like, yeah, because prison is fucking dark. Yeah. Fucked up shit. Like, that's some fucked up shit. We put, you know, humans in cages and then whatever. We don't need to get into that. Uh did you have anything else to say about that movie? No, I haven't seen it in so long. I remember not. I remember, like, having a similar feeling as you being like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was. Interesting. But then also not liking it as much as I wanted to like it. Yeah. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, And then the other two things that I watched was that Jim and Andy documentary, which I've already talked about. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, the TV show Kidding, which has been on Showtime for one season. Um, And in that, he plays a Mr. Rogers type kids show guy named Mr. Pickles. And it's uh, a show where his his father is like the executive producer and showrunner. And his sister, played by Catherine Keener, who always amazing um is like their creative director and she is is like the head puppet maker oh my god there's so many puppets on this show it's so wonderful and they have that like weird michelle gondry feel to them because he (laughs) yeah um he has directed a lot of the episodes and i think is one of the executive producers um there's even and Joey didn't tell me about this, and I was like, how could you have not told... Like, this would have gotten me to watch the show so much sooner. There is a uh, puppet that is a French baguette, and his name is Henri. <laughs> and um, I just love him so much, and it's such a good show. But So the show is like a very dark comedy, um, because Mr. Bick... Or I think his name is Jeff, Jeff Pickles. Um, in real life, Jeff has these two twin boys and his one of the sons died in a car accident. So, like, right off the bat, we're dealing with child death on this mm-hmm. comedy show, which is, you know, a very taboo topic that 
is something that people deal with and we don't talk about as a culture and it can be, you know, not just the purgatorial torment of grief, but also, you know, being so isolated by the fact that like no one wants to mention that your kid died. Mm -hmm. And um, so Mr. Pickles wants to do an episode of the show about death and his father Mm -hmm. is like, we cannot do that. It will traumatize the children, <laughs> you know. And so the, over the course of the season of Kidding, Jeff Pickles kind of unravels. Like, it, the show starts maybe like a month or two after his son's death, and he seems to be fine. Mm-hmm. He and his wife have separated, um, and his other son is acting out, which is all to be expected. Um, but he seems to be holding it together, except for the fact that he wants to do this weird show about death. And then he, like, progressively unravels over the course of the season, making, like, more and more um, weird television that the editors are like we have seven we have seven usable minutes like we can't keep doing this (laughs) you know we're on pbs there's no commercial breaks come on um and over the course of the season he meets this woman with terminal cancer and they start dating and she's written so well and um they have sex scenes and it like that whole thing like it's not we she's written like a real person and not like a cancer patient, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's even a sex scene and like she's topless and has a chest port, which is um, Mm -hmm. how people who receive intravenous fluids, medication, et cetera, a lot, you wind up getting one of those or like a pick line so that like they don't destroy all your veins. Mm -hmm. Um, And it like, pokes out a little bit in your chest and it's something that like it's a thing that I know a lot of people who have them just for like chronic illness purposes or people who have have or have had cancer um and that's a thing that we never see you know and so like to see that on tv and not just on tv but like in a sex scene where like a woman is enjoying herself is was like very moving to me Mm. um and Leslie no not Leslie man she was in the movie I was just talking about. What is her name? Oh my God, she's so good. Fuck, hang on. Judy Greer. How could I possibly oh, have forgotten her name? I can see why you mixed them up, though. Yeah, same <laughs> appro- approximate size and color. Um, so Judy Greer pl- plays his ex-wife, and she is always amazing. And this was not at all surprising, but she's incredible in the show because they actually like let her like be serious Mm -hmm. and not just absurd serious but Mm -hmm. like like she's playing this mother who has lost her son and is like going through all these changes in her life and so um it's really great to see her in a part like that so highly recommend this show is so good um it's funny it's sad it's absurd it's wonderful the whole thing so that's it that's all the things that i watched or at least all the things that have jim carrey in it i've been spending a lot of time on the couch (laughs) two things one Mm -hmm. do you follow rob delaney at all not really no but i do know that his he lost a child to cancer right and he talks about it Yeah, yeah um in a way that i don't know that i've ever heard other people talk about um I like him a lot for 
he has so many layers for somebody who is a is a comedian who can really easily be seen as just a comedian. He has so many layers. Well, that are really interesting. Jim Carrey. Yeah. yeah. Um. Oh, I also wanted to. Re- I wanted to go back to the cable guy for a second mm-hmm. because I was reading my notes and I wrote down one other quote that probably is from the same article that I didn't write down what it was from. Um. Where they they basically compare the way Jim Carrey is treating Matthew Broderick to the way that many men women, women are treated yeah. by men. Yep. Which I just yeah, thought was... Yeah, because he's like a crazy ex-girlfriend type. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so it says, Thankfully, the film doesn't code Carrey's character as a gay predator. If anything, it's making Broderick a proxy for every woman who's tried to politely sidestep the persistent advances of someone she's not interested in. Oh, interesting. Because I, I like, Ooh. think it works both ways of like the way that men treat wi- women as like a crazy ex girlfriend. But I didn't think about it in the other way around. But Jim Carrey that, like, actually is crazy. Like your well, thing would yeah. be true if he was not actually a crazy person, mm-hmm. but he is. <laughs> well, yeah, that's fair. But also, yes, you're right. The way that w- women have to deal with uh, overly uh, attentive men. That's a and and Matthew a Broderick just like constantly feels bad, yeah. you know, about like saying no or like pushing him away or like. But also, he's really an clear. asshole too. Oh, for sure. But he yeah. has a problem drawing boundaries, yeah. Which I think is a thing that many women also struggle mm-hmm. with. Well, we're taught not to have any, so yeah, we're usually starting from nothing. That's really interesting. They go to medieval times in that movie. That made me laugh. In the cable guy. They do go to medieval times and Janine Garofalo is their waitress. Yeah. Also, <laughs> uh, the thing that like makes Matthew Broderick want to try and like turn his life around is that he sees an infomercial and it's like a very young Tony Robbins. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, it's Tony Robbins. Have you seen that documentary, I Am Not Your gu- Guru? No, but I remember when it came out. Oh man, it's fucking wild. Weird. It's really interesting. I I am fascinated by uh, cult and cult-adjacent figures, mm-hmm. and I think he's very much one of those. Did you know that he, like, doesn't actually clap? He just pretends to clap? What? It's insane. Yeah. So, like, instead of clapping, he yeah. will, like, bring his, his palms together quickly, but not actually touch them. Why? I don't remember, but I just <laughs> think that's insane. Uh, all right. I'm driving the boat. I forgot. Um, Ooh, it's a boat now. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, spring's coming. So. <laughs> Gotta get get it uh, ready for the water. Uh, do you have any other thoughts about Jim Carrey? No. No, but I'm glad you came around about him. Me too. This has been quite an adventure. Um, oh, I mentioned it on our What Am I Chewing episode, but didn't really talk about it in the last one his artwork is really interesting um he took up visual art in 2011 and started painting and uh since the 2016 election has been drawing political cartoons which are very interesting um you know for someone who this is like a recent thing he has a really good handle on like perspective and color mm-hmm. and uh i think his art's 
mostly very very interesting not always good but uh i showed some of it to my boyfriend and he was like well it's very like ham-fisted and i was like well that's jim carrey like i feel like his creative output is kind of like regardless of how it manifests itself itself is still like vibrating on the same wavelength you know Mm -hmm. so it's interesting to see it uh, come out in a visual way He also does some sculpture work, and he made a giant naked woman for his garden, which is weird, but whatever. People have been making naked ladies in art since the beginning, so it's nothing new. But apparently, when the full moon comes out, it like lights up her eyes, because she's a moon goddess. So. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I'm tired. Um, Jordan, if people wanted to find you, where should they look? I'm on Instagram at JordoPC. Yeah, and I am also on Instagram at Bimps. Wistful Thinking is on Instagram at WistfulPod, even though I have not updated it in a while. Um, you can write us an email, wistfulpod at gmail.com. Do whatever. Or don't. It's fine. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.